Earth. All of you on the good Earth. everybody to another episode of the talking space podcast yes you heard that right we are back this is the beginning of the ninth season of talking space with talking space episode 901 for the week of monday april 17th 2017 and to specify i have to do this beginning of every season this is not our 901st episode this is season nine (laughs) episode one Although this is episode 240, if you are keeping count, but, you know, who's counting? It is a new season. We have a lot of amazing things in the works for this new season. We've got a new website coming very soon, which we're excited about, and a few other little surprises, but I am thankfully joined by the same amazing group of people, including Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Greetings and felicitations, sir. I am also joined by Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Craftless. And salutations, Sawyer. (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't resist for all you Charlotte's Web fans out there. (laughs) I am also joined by Kat Robison. So excited to be back for season nine. And of course, the one and only Mark Ratterman. It's always good to be here. Thanks. Always good to have everybody here, and we are so glad to be back. Now, let's not waste any time, because we've been gone for quite a while, but we're going to jump into some recent space news first. And we're going to start, as we always do, with upcoming launches. Hopefully, by the time this episode is out, there will have been two of them. One of them that is currently scheduled is OA-7. That is a resupply mission to the International Space Station. That will be an orbital ATK Cygnus resupply vehicle launched aboard a United Launch Alliance Atlas V-401 rocket out of Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida. This is their last scheduled launch on a ULA rocket before going back to their own rocket, the Antares, out of Wallops Island, Virginia. The launch is currently scheduled, and it could change by the time this comes out, for Tuesday, April 18th, with a 30-minute launch window that opens at 11.11 a.m. Eastern Time, make a wish, or 15.11 UTC. One really cool thing about this launch, not only is it the last, not only is it the last scheduled orbital ATK launch from Florida, but it will be the first launch broadcasted live in 360 degrees. That's right, approximately 10 minutes before launch at youtube.com slash NASA television. They will be showing the launch in 360 degrees, so you can use your mouse to move around and, well, pick your own launch viewing angle. That's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, go ahead, Ken. I'm sorry. I was just going to say I love technology. I'm really excited for this. Yeah, it's going to be kind of an interesting way to view a launch. I'm just picturing what, say, oh, I don't know, maybe the upcoming, if they're going to do the same thing with... uh, Oh, I don't know, SLS perhaps once uh, it starts launching or any other uh, uh, NASA-related launch. Uh, it should be interesting, too, to see that 
on pad 39a say when spacex launches a uh, cargo resupply or anything like that but yeah this is going to be kind of cool to take in and uh please take advantage of it everybody and how cool like i love that they're doing it for this launch because i mean first of all i have a special love for atlases because my first and most recent launch have both been atlases but <laughs> i love that they're trying this out now and not using it as like a brand new technology for sls because this way they can test it out make sure it works work out the kinks bringing these launches to us it's important it's still the best way to get people jazzed and excited is to show them a launch video so a launch video that's actually interactive like that that's so on point with today's technology and it's the kind of thing that kids will get really excited about and adults will still get really excited about it'll bring out the kid in us so it's really a brilliant way to go and i'm so glad that they're doing it for an atlas me too me too i love atlas yeah i've seen more atlas launches than any others and they are they're pretty cool. So if you haven't seen one, this is a great way to get a chance to see it. And if you already saw the launch in regular old 2D and you want to watch the 360 video of it, I'm sure it will be up on their YouTube channel for quite some time. And this works on most browsers as well as in the YouTube app. I'm really hoping that something happens. I don't know if any of you were familiar with the uh, Destination Mars with the VR glasses thing. That would be really cool to do that with a launch and get to like walk around a launch as it's happening virtually would would just blow my mind. And the technology for that Destination Mars exhibit that they had at uh, KFC was amazing. And it would be really amazing with a yeah, launch. Yeah, agreed. I'm just wondering how the camera doesn't get destroyed by the immediate impact of launch if it's going to have to have clear covering 360 degrees well, around. Well, those GoPros that uh, I see some of the, uh, the press folks use, they take a lot of punishment too, so... True, but even the GoPros, they'll stick them inside a protective box, and then they'll have yeah. cooling units, and a lot of people use mailboxes, believe it or not. But <laughs> it'll be interesting yeah, to see that. how that works. Just as an aside, uh, just to let folks know, this is not... The reason why we're using Atlas is because of the weight that Cygnus is going to be carrying. It's going to be carrying about uh, uh, a total cargo of about 7,625 pounds. This is, I think, a little bit beyond what Antares can handle. And so they're really, really loading down the spacecraft. Indeed. In fact, at NEF this past weekend, which we'll talk about later, Frank DeMauro was saying NASA came to them and said, hey, can you schedule another Atlas launch because we need to send up some extra cargo. And I'm sure most of our listeners remember there were a few cargo ships that didn't make it. And this is a way to make up for a little bit of that. So, you know, once again, we've mentioned it many times, but three cheers to Orbital ATK for planning for this adaptability because this is a case where last time they used an Atlas as you were alluding to, Gene, was because they needed a rocket and a launch pad that were functioning. But this time, it's really just, they. this is a big boon for NASA that they can add to their launch capability. Well, again, too, the, the point I was, I was going to make as well is this has really, really nothing to do with Antares. In fact, uh, the, the re-engined Antares performed extraordinarily well during OA-5. In fact, I think it uh, exceeded expectations. So the whole deal is that, yeah, they can also, as you pointed out, be flexible, meaning uh, plus or- Orbital has got that kind of experience anyway. They've they've 
set up satellites from other clients for both Ariane 5, for ULA, and of course for themselves. And uh, so they've got a lot of experience in that area as far as getting slot A into groove B or putting a, a round peg into a square hole. And not just making the tech work together, but making all the companies and people work together. Last time went flawlessly, and uh, hopefully this launch will be fantastic again, as it usually is with a ULA launch. <laughs> um, since how many have they had in a row successful launches now? <laughs> it's over 110. Oh, I, now I can't remember it. NIFA, uh, they they kept touting their number. Yeah, 118. 118, yes. 118. Not, not that I really like ULA or anything, and stalk them on Twitter and get pictures of them drawn by comic artists or anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't have a small rocket obsession. Uh, I think that story is going to need its own blog post at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I will, I will make that happen. At any rate too, uh, it looks like this particular Cygnus is also going to be carrying up the uh, follow-up to uh, the Sapphire experiments as Folks know these are experiments trying to, to study how fire behaves in uh, microgravity environments, and uh, I believe this is the third in the series of that. Uh, there's a few other science payloads. It, too, will be also launching uh, some CubeSats, and this is like toward the end of the mission. I think there's a few other experiments flying. I know CASIS has got a sponsored experiment flying. I think that's the uh, magnetic 3D cell culturing. Apparently, they're, they're using magnetized cells and to make it easier to handle cell cultures and to go ahead and and try to improve how an experiment can be reproduced with cell culture so that's one experiment they're flying they're also flying uh, another experiment here and i'm, I'm just going to pull up the pdf here real fast the adcs and microgravity experiment this is evaluating according to the release i'm reading here evaluates new antibody drug coagulants and so on so this is or conjugates i'm sorry so this is another experiment that might go ahead and, and see how cancer cells also grow in microgravity uh, conditions i understand too according to this here cancer cells grow in in a three-dimensional spheroid directions and I think try to understand why that's happening. So that's just a few of the experiments that are going to be flying on, on this particular Cygnus. And I should say, too, that this, this vehicle is, is named for John H. Glenn Jr. Orbital ATK has got a habit of doing that, honoring fallen astronauts. Yeah, I really love how they do that, and it's going to be a great one. And hopefully this season will be able to focus a lot more of some of that science going on aboard the ISS. You mentioned just a few of the amazing experiments that are happening, and uh, we'll be focusing on that a lot more this season, including returning to the International Space Station Conference later this year, and hopefully a whole lot more. All the best of luck to Orbital ATK, ULA, and NASA on that one. Now, before we move on to the second launch, we need to mention the return, safely, of some crew members from the International Space Station. NASA astronaut Shane Kimbrough, along with his two Russian crewmates, Sergei Ryskyov and Andrei Borisenko, safely returned from their 173-day stay aboard the International Space Station, landing in Kazakhstan on April 10th, 2017. So, with them down, there are only three people aboard the International Space Station right now, which means it's time to send up two more. Hopefully by the time this episode airs, we will have those two more people aboard the International Space Station. And that includes Russian cosmonaut Fyodor Yurchenkin and NASA astronaut and first-time space flyer Jack Fisher. Their Soyuz is scheduled to launch 
on Thursday, April 20th at 3.13 a.m. Eastern Time, which is 7.13 UTC and 1.13 p.m. local time at the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. This is the Soyuz MS-04 spacecraft, and we'll rendezvous shortly thereafter at the International Space Station. Now, Jack Fisher, like we mentioned, he is a first-time space flyer, but he's been with NASA for a little while now, and he was actually at the Orion EFT-1 launch, where we caught up with him and got to talk with him. I thought he was a cool guy, and Kat, you got to interview him, right? I had a great chance to talk to him about the Orion program to which he is assigned. And also, uh, we're going to play you a little bit of that interview because he talks about how he got involved in the space program and a little bit about his habits on Twitter. First, just a little bit about yourself. Looking over your bio, it seems since your whole career has pretty much led up to being an astronaut. Has that always been a goal for you? Always been a goal since I was a little kid. I always wanted to be an astronaut and, you know, doing something that I love along the way because it's a little bit of luck and, and timing to ever get a, into the core, but uh, certainly always wanted to. Did you get in on your first try? I did because nowadays when we only have the selections every few years, mm -hmm. uh, you're either too inexperienced or too old or every now and again you kind of hit it right and you're so just right so I, the sweet spot. I i was kind of like the the little goldilocks and, and found the right in between that's really great so you're on twitter yourself as at astro to fish but you rarely tweet are you shy no well you know i when i first started i was tweeting a bunch and then I started working in the commercial crew program in, mm -hmm. in Orion. And and a lot of the stuff that I was doing, so, you know, it's a lot of meetings. And it's it's not, you know, too horribly <laughs> sexy to uh, tweet, hey, look, I'm in a meeting. We're talking about a hatch for four hours. So it's not too awful sexy to uh, folks. And then, then also with the commercial crew program, a lot of that data is proprietary because mm -hmm. they are they are doing their their best to make the most efficient way for us to get to space, and none of that is really something you can share and, and publicize. Yeah. I would love to stand and, and shout from the rooftops what I think. You know, I getting to work with the Boeing team, I absolutely love them, and I think they're the most gifted group of folks that I've, I've had the pleasure of working with. It's just I can't talk about that yeah. or really show those pictures because how the contract is laid out. Understandable. So if you've never gotten to talk with him, I got to talk with him that same day as well. He is such a cool guy. If you haven't got a chance to talk to him, well, the good news is his personality comes through in his tweets. And yes, like he said, it is at Astro2, the number two, fish. Most people, it's like Astro underscore Jack or something like that. Nope. Astro, the number two fish. If that's not a sign, then nothing is. One thing is uh, they named their spaceship Argo. However, he kind of calls it a different name, as there's a tweet that happened on April 14th that says, quote, it's possible we are a little bit excited about getting aboard this sexy rocket and heading to the space station. Yes, many tweets call the rocket sexy. Not that I'm disagreeing, but it's not something you hear every day from an official astronaut Twitter account, I'll say that. Right? Well, I'm glad that in the intervening time from when I spoke to him at the EFT-1 launch that he found something sexy to tweet about. Yeah, even at one point he tweeted, we love our Argo, the spacecraft. So yesterday we asked Papa for her hand in marriage. It's just, <laughs> he has so much fun with it. There's a picture of him with the rocket, you know, between his fingers. He's from far away of how big is the Soyuz rocket? Hmm, it's about this big. He's just very clever 
with his tweets. And probably the most clever of all of them, if I do say so myself, is actually a great lead into our next story. He says, quote, this is from April 6th, awesome news smothered in awesome sauce. <laughs> if that's not a great start to a tweet, nothing is. So first off, let's stop right there for a second and wish the best of luck to Jack Fisher and his crewmates who will be heading up to the International Space Station. They will be joining a crew of three that is already up there that include Oleg Novitsky from Roscosmos, Issa, astronaut Thomas Pesquet, and the subject of our next story, NASA astronaut Peggy Whitson. In fact, that's who his tweet was about. His tweet continues totally stoked to hang with at Astro Peggy longer on orbit because astronaut Peggy Whitson's already historic stay aboard the International Space Station is about to get three months longer. Peggy Whitson will be staying aboard the International Space Station an extra three months where she is already currently the commander of Expedition 51. She launched the ISS back in November of 2016 and well, we'll be staying past that. Why, you may ask? Well, actually, it has to do with the Russians. At the Russian space agency, Roscosmos, they mentioned last year that they would start downsizing the number of cosmonauts continually living on the ISS from three to two. So as a result, they want more people aboard the International Space Station, and this will do just that. This will maximize efficiency, according to Roscosmos, by cutting down to two, and save money until they launch their long-delayed ISS module which we know as the multi-purpose laboratory module. They hope to go back to three after that module launches, which is scheduled to launch either at the end of this year or the beginning of next year. But hey, Peggy Whitson has said she is super excited and wanted to stay, right? Yeah, so she did a uh, interview, I believe with Bill, well, I think it was with Bill Harwood, just this past Thursday, actually, as we record this. And uh, she was saying, yeah, that uh, she had hoped that the opportunity had come up. She had talked to her husband and said, this might happen. And he was like, hey, if it happens, go for it. So they were both in agreement. And this, I believe, makes Peggy Whitson the U.S. Uh, endurance holder in space after she comes back. So I believe she's due back when at this point, so uh, September. I believe so. It was originally supposed to be in June or July, and now we're looking at September. And yes, she has beat right. the record of Jeff Williams, which was previously 534 days in space. She also will be the first ever woman to command the International Space Station twice. And she has also spent more time on spacewalks than any other woman and still has more spacewalks to go. Yeah, she also indicated, I believe, during the interview that she was looking forward to a day where these records really don't mean anything, um, meaning that everybody's going there and everybody's spending time up there and so on. So she says she's kind of proud of the fact that she does have this honor, but she's, as I said, looking forward to a day where uh, it's not uh, any big deal. And uh, um, I guess so are we all, and we're hoping that this is going to be remembered, though, for a while, and uh, that she'll be looked at as the pioneer that she is. So hats off to her, and, and hopefully the rest of the stay on the ISS is a grand success. You know, that's the thing, is the only way that we're going to get to the point where we don't have to celebrate these things is by celebrating them very loudly while we do. That's a good way to put it. And if nothing else, we've talked about this because she's been in space before while the Talking Space podcast has been on the air. She's just a certifiable boss. 
I can't think of any other way to put it without losing our clean rating on iTunes. <laughs> but she is just absolutely awesome and an exemplary member of the NASA Corps. And part of why NASA astronauts have the reputation that they do is because of her amazingness. So congratulations indeed to Peggy Whitson. Now, we talked about some of the resupply missions to the International Space Station. Some of the Russian resupply missions launch aboard what are called proton rockets. They will also launch other types of satellites. We've talked about them before. Some of them successful, unfortunately recently, a few of them unsuccessful. It seems like there's a bit of a production problem, and apparently we're not the only ones noticing that. Right, Gene? Yeah, Sawyer, there was a report out of the Moscow Times, uh, I believe this was around March 30th, indicating that the engines, about 71 of them, that are used for Proton are faulty. This is the entire group. These engines are used on both the second and third stage of the Proton vehicle, and they all have issues with them. 71. That's just going hand in hand with what's going on with the Russian program right now. It's it's in serious trouble, and the quality control just isn't there in a lot, in a, in a lot of areas. And you know they've they've got to step it up because you know here they are. They're planning on they they want to go to the moon. They want to do this. They want to do that. My first question with the Russian program is where they're going to get the money for all this because the, they are really really cash strapped. That's one. To just the QC problems that they've been having of late, it just boggles the mind. So how do you recover from, from something like that? Don't know. I mean, do you start from scratch or do you just try to see what's going on with each one of these engines? And what does that do to the Proton program overall? I understand that they do plan on launching Proton in the not-too-distant future. So do you just kind of grit your teeth and hope it works or do you do something else? Or do you launch uh, using another booster while you get your, your act together here? And my other question is, too, I know Atlas uses the RD-180, which is currently a Russian product. And I believe part of the problem may have been RD-180 related and why we had this launch delay with, with OA-7. And I'm wondering, too, is that kind of permeating? Is the engine problem kind of trickling down? And are we... Do we need to go ahead and, and, and really, really watch what we're getting from Russia now? I mean, I know Antares uses the RD-191, which the Russian Angara booster is going to be using. And I understand, too, that the next Angara launch has been delayed until 2018. Where are we going with this? And they've really, really got to buckle down and figure out what's going on with the program. Otherwise, like it or not right now, they're a critical linchpin with the ISS. They're the only nation that can fly humans currently to the International Space Station. So that's one thing to go ahead and take a look at it too. But they're also very, very much involved in logistics with progress. So they really, really got to solve these problems if they're going to go ahead and continue to provide the services that they need to provide to help sustain at least the International Space Station going forward. And what does this do to their future programs? I know they have lunar aspirations. What does this do to that? Does it change anything? I don't know. We'll just have to just wait and see. We'll certainly have to keep an eye on that. And if we know more, we will update you guys on a later episode. Now, we do want to jump back in time to another launch that happened, well, while we were gone. On March 30th, 2017, at 6.27 p.m. Eastern Time, or 22.27 GMT, 
Launch Complex 39A roared to life, as it has been so far this year with a Falcon 9 rocket, but this was the SES-10 mission, which flew a previously, a previously flown Falcon 9 booster. This booster was flown back in April of 2016 on the CRS-8 resupply mission to the International Space Station. It was the first mission to successfully land on a booster in the ocean, and this one launched, delivered its payload, and landed again on that same booster in the Atlantic Ocean. This makes it the first ever successful relaunch of a previously flown SpaceX booster. So we have a little bit of history for SpaceX and what some are calling the era of reusability beginning again. At the same time during that mission, it is believed that they also recovered one of the two halves of the payload fairing as well. So a lot of reusability on this one mission. What do you think this means for the future? Obviously historic for SpaceX. But what about for the space industry as a whole? What do you guys think? Well, we've had reusability since, dare I say this, since uh, April 12th, 1981, with the dawn of the space shuttle era. We were reusing the uh, the SRBs on that flight. We were using all the birds afterward. We do know that that was an expensive proposition. I do know what SpaceX is trying to do is trying to take that to another level where it's not as expensive anymore to to do that you don't need like this whole phalanx of people to make sure an orbiter is is uh, healthy and happy after a flight but i'm a little dubious about the turnaround times that they've said they want to try going forward Sawyer, as you pointed out, it's good history for them. I don't know whether a lot, everybody in the media was, was, was touting this as a historic moment. And I'm like, yeah, maybe. Does this prove the business model? Not yet. I think they have a long way to go to prove that business model. The reason why is, okay, can you do this again? And how quickly can you do it? Elon Musk is saying 24 hours. Well, I think the thing we have to keep in, in mind with SpaceX timelines is that we have to take them all with a grain of salt. Red Dragon, Falcon Heavy, I mean, still waiting on a Falcon Heavy test. Obviously, if SpaceX is able to obtain the level of reusability they're aiming for, that's excellent for the space industry. It's great, it will set a standard for the commercial space sector, and it would be good because it would drive down costs, and, and driving down costs is great. But some of his promised time frames, you know, you just, you have to, realize that there's um, time here, and then there's also SpaceX time, and SpaceX time moves a little bit slowly than Earth. Yeah, I mean, it's typical, I don't want to trash Elon Musk, but it's typical Elon Musk, you know, over-promise and under-deliver. This is like the, the announcement that they made not too long after that, that they were going to go ahead and do a circumlunar mission, I believe at the end of next year, with Falcon Heavy, and with the Crew Dragon. And my thought is really not according to what everybody's been saying, that saying both Boeing and SpaceX have had development issues with their crew capsules. So how can you go ahead and promise to individuals a circumlunar flight when you know darn well that you're not even going to make the commercial crew deadline? You know, hello, and Kat, as you pointed out, there just seems to be two sets of timelines, reality and what Mr. Musk thinks reality is. 
And I understand why he's doing that. He's trying to keep his company in, in the news and, and keep it going. But you can cry wolf so many times without people going, yeah, right. And I, I think we're at, we're, we're at that point. I mean, I'm sorry to kind of be the, you know, the one to throw the proverbial baby Ruth bar in the swimming pool. Although Musk is doing some really great things and SpaceX is developing some really cool technology. I mean, I could see that booster being used and, and that possible landing attitude that they do use as a possible Mars lander. But you, you've got to work in reality, too, and I think he's missing that. I mean, it's I think it's great for him. And the big thing is that if this does come to fruition and the costs do come down. SpaceX believe that once this becomes more regular, the cost of launches could go from the current $62 million to somewhere between 7 and $9 million. Because apparently the first stage is a large majority of the cost of these launches. Uh, the fuel is less than 5% of the entire cost of the launch. It's pretty much nothing. So it all comes down to things like the fairings, which are millions of dollars, and the booster. So, I mean, if they can do that, that's spectacular. If they can do it without incurring the costs that Space Shuttle had to not only make it reusable, but to make it safe, that, I think, is the big thing. Because for right now, if you look at the price options, even if they get the price down to what ULA is at right now, SpaceX has had two failures within the last two years. ULA is 118 in a row. So if you're looking to buy a rocket to launch your satellite, you know, until the costs come drastically down, which for everyone's sake, I hope they do, who are you going to lean towards? Hey, sir, the other thing, too, is the fact that I believe we're talking, Musk wants to get this down to a 24-hour turnaround. You can't treat these things like they were passenger aircraft. And, and I guess, Mark, you can probably say something about that since you do have an FAA background. But you just can't treat rockets like they were passenger aircraft. I mean, with rockets, there's always something that goes wrong and on every flight. It's always something a little minor, a little minor quirk that happens with the engines or something like that. And it almost makes you believe that these, gosh darn it, these, this thing will never fly again. And it, it always gives you pause. If you're going to go ahead and treat a rocket as though it were a 747's, rockets will turn around and bite you. And when they bite, they hurt. And we, we saw an indication of that last September with Amos 6. I'm hoping that nobody gets bit in, in this process of trying to make this work. Just try to refine it, indeed. Keep it moving, keep it going. Try to get that timeline down to that magic number of 24 hours, but don't rush into it. Because if you do, I think you're, you're looking at a go-fever situation. Again, I do want to specify is that we're rooting for SpaceX, whether it seems like we are or not. We've said this before, and this has become our SpaceX disclaimer, is that we're not trying to trash talk them. We don't want them to fail. We want them to succeed. We want them to drive down Indeed, the sir. cost of launches so that it becomes more affordable for a lot of people to send amazing experiments and payloads and things like that into space. We want this to work. We just want it to work safely. And I can guarantee you that if any other company was having this difficulty with reliability in the past and with schedules, we'd be on it. In fact, we've been on it before with other companies. So this isn't us bashing SpaceX. We want them to succeed with all of our heart and soul. Just keep that in mind, everybody, as you listen to our comments. There was something I posted on Twitter earlier, and I'm, I'm going to mention the individual. She goes by uh, the Twitter handle Abby Garrett X. 
she's apparently a, quite a good uh, artist. And she actually did an artist rendition of every one of the commercial vehicles and every one of the commercial crew vehicles, along with Orion and, and SLS and so on. And she said she gave them eyes and everything and basically wrote at the bottom, there's space enough for everybody. And that, I think, puts our philosophy forward. So, Abby, thanks a lot. I'm giving you a shout out. But I thought that was just such a neat piece of artistry, and it kind of puts our philosophy in perspective. So, Okay, I'm going to throw my two cents in. And I tend to see email and, and anniversary-type stuff regarding aviation. 114 years ago, and I'm rounding numbers off, but 114 years ago, the Wright brothers first flew at Kitty Hawk. Look at where we are today. We've got an aircraft that has circled the globe on solar power. 55 years after the Wright brother flight, the Boeing 707 entered production. And that was uh, an aircraft that I'm just grabbing at random almost as sort of the beginning of the jet age for commercial aviation. Yuri Gagarin flew 58 years after the Wright brothers. So... You know, we're talking about reusability, and I was a critic of it when we first brought it up on the show. I thought it was a waste of lift capability to fly something back and try and land it. But realistically, let's go to 2060, 2060 to 2070, and let's see where we're at. Because it wouldn't surprise me if we're not all just dumbfounded at what's been accomplished in the four to five decades between now and then. And I think that's an amount of time that's necessary because there has to be innovation. There has to be industrial commitment to things. And all of those things take time. So in this case, where before I was a critic, I'll applaud SpaceX on what they've accomplished. I know there's other things by other companies that are coming along. And I'm looking forward to hearing about it. And it won't be a road traveled without some bumps and maybe some problems. But I think it'll be a road that we will travel, and I think it'll be interesting to see where we are in uh, 40 to 50 years. And I think that's the perfect note to leave this topic on. Of course, we're always open to your thoughts and opinions and what you think. If you disagree with us, we want to hear that. If you agree with us, well, we could hear that too. Send us your thoughts on this to mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com. You can tweet us at TalkingSpace, post it on our Facebook page, which is Facebook.com slash TalkingSpace. On our Google Plus page as well, just look for Talking Space on Google Plus, or you can use the Contact Us page on our website as well. All right, everybody, we continue along away from SpaceX and out into planetary science. We don't cover planetary science, I feel, as much as we should, but this is absolutely too spectacular not to mention. Recent findings from both the Cassini spacecraft around Saturn and the Hubble Space Telescope looking towards Jupiter have found some amazing things on their moons. So where do we begin with this besides holy cow? So Gene, what do we now know about these, well, icy, oceany worlds? Well, as far as the Cassini finding is concerned, they apparently, the Cassini team announced that they found hydrogen in those plumes around Enceladus. Now, that may or may not be a indication that there is some sort of biological thing placing the hydrogen in there, meaning that this could be a precursor for some sort of life. 
on Enceladus. This is the way it was at least being reported in a lot of news media. What this basically really, really means is that the table is set for the possibility of some sort of bacterial or microbial life, possibly, maybe. I'm going to underline that in red three times. Those of you in accounting know what that means. Um, maybe that's the case, that there might be something in there. I, I, it opens up the door, at least, and it makes, makes Enceladus a lot more of an intriguing world to go ahead and take a look at. As well, I believe the, uh, the PI, the principal investigator, said when the announcement was made, is this this is sort of like a capstone to Cassini's mission who those who may not know come September 15th Cassini will make a final dive into uh, the cloud tops of Saturn and end its mission that way preparation for that starts i believe April 26 with the final burn this again is it really really sets the table for the possibility of life here and so are we alone maybe maybe not we'll see my favorite comment about this was actually from uh, Tanya Harrison on Twitter, and she said, she was like, I love Mars. Mars is great, but if we want to look for signs of current life, we need to be looking at ocean worlds. Yeah. We might find signs of past life on Mars, but it's these ocean worlds that are also in our solar system. And remembering that we ourselves are an ocean world. More of our surface area of the planet is covered by oceans than, than land. So, I mean, it's incredibly exciting, and not just exciting, but the images are beautiful and just inspiring. And it's incredibly cool that we are at a point in our history as humans that we have spacecraft that beam us back, pictures and science, and we are on the cusp of exciting discoveries. Yes, the big thing is when they've been looking for all of these things, they have pillars that they need to meet for basically the signs of life, keeping in mind that Cassini's mission was never designed to search for life. Heck, Cassini's mission was never designed to look for plumes because they had no idea that there were plumes coming off of Enceladus when the mission started. So they're going off of the pillars that they need, and one of those is that they've been lacking is some form of food source, essentially, for if there were bacterial life or microbial life of any kind. And that hydrogen in there that they found is that last missing pillar for the signs needed for life. I'm going to throw a question out there. What do you think this does to Mars? Does it lose its luster a little bit? Or do we just go ahead and do this mad charge or, or what? No. 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 No, because Mars has human implications right now, not just, I mean, of course, we're always looking for extraterrestrial life on Mars and signs of it and everything, but we're also looking at it as a place for us to be very soon, which anything further is not within our grasp, even over 30 years, you know? So I, I think it's just the luster might change. The focus might start shifting, but... I don't think it'll actually take shine off of Mars because it's also, it's our neighbor. It's something we all grew up seeing and pointing out in the sky. And it's got that kind of magic to it as well. So yeah, I don't think we like lose interest in our next door neighbor. <laughs> I agree, but hopefully now this will actually say to people, hey, look, all these missions that they've been proposing to Enceladus, you know, or some of these mm -hmm. other moons like Europa, which was the other finding of Hubble Space Telescope finding 
very similar geysers that were erupting. The big thing they were looking for was, well, it's got to come from a hot spot because otherwise it doesn't really have that same oomph like the one on Enceladus does. And it corresponds with the one anomalously warm region on the surface of Europa. So another potential there. So all of these moons of Jupiter and Saturn, you know, people have talked about missions to them for years and people have said, no, why would mm -hmm. we want to go there? Well, now there might actually be a reason to extend planetary science to other places, not just the planets, but their moons. All those years ago, first time I was on this very show, when I wrote Bake Sale for NASA, there's a reason I included the line to answer the questions that in the past we didn't even know to ask. With each mission, we don't just get a bunch of answers. What we get far, far more than answers is we get more questions. And that's what we base our next missions on. That's what we base our decadal surveys on. That's what we base which missions get picked, which get funded, which go. And so with each mission, what we're really doing is opening up, wow, we have all these missions that we have to do. It really just shows us more and more. I think somebody just said this, why we need to do more planetary science and why we need to extend that reach. Over the past what year, we've hit the first point where we actually have had data beaming back hardcore about every planet in our solar system. Of course, it's time to look at like the better moons and to start exploring those more and more. But that's the nature of exploration. You have to start with getting the original data and knowing what to look for in the future. And, you know, we didn't get to curiosity first, we had lots and lots of landers that showed us what we needed to look for. And that's what we built Curiosity based on. So it's the same thing with all of these missions. It's great. I mean, it's the wonderful thing about scientific exploration in general and planetary exploration specifically is we keep getting better instruments and better observations and they keep making us say, whoa, this is happening and we have no idea why. Let's go find out which is something that's beautiful about science. When you don't understand why something's happening or, you know, Pluto changed the way we thought about active geology on planets, right? On icy worlds. And it was exciting and it's great. And it just reinvigorates this passion to, to be able to, to make the case for what well, we need to continue to go out and explore. Because these are important questions that speak to our own origins in the universe. And answering those help answer questions about ourselves. And it's just, it's a very exciting time to, to be alive and to be following planetary exploration. I'm wondering what this holds for the Europa Clipper mission that I believe is uh, set to launch sometime in the uh, early 2020s. Uh, it The current mission has it going by uh, Europa. I believe it's going to do about 40 to 45 flybys of that little world and uh, it's going to go ahead and get uh, some good high-res images and take a look at this world in, a, in another light. So I'm wondering too if what impact that's going to have or the findings that uh, Hubble has just reported and is going to have on, on the instrument selection for the Europa Clipper. It'll be interesting to see how that, how that all plays out. I mean I hope so. Again, these missions need to happen as we need to explore these moons more because this is the best chance, in my opinion, that we've had for any form of life in our solar system. And just think, if we're finding all of these amazing pillars and things that are necessary for life as we know it on moons in our solar system, and we think about how many other solar systems and things that we've been discovering with Kepler and missions like that, 
the possibilities that are out there it just blows your mind and the the other thing too sure was that hubble was involved in making the discovery and to me says shoot i mean the, this instrument's been up there for so long and, and has just delivered stunning pictures of our of our universe and here it is making a huge contribution to our own planetary neighborhood and understanding of it so again hats off to the hubble team too oh yeah hats off to the teams that worked on Cassini and on Hubble for this amazing discovery. Now, while we're talking about planetary science, that was one of the many topics of discussion at this year's Northeast Astronomy Forum, which is a regular event held in Suffern, New York, just outside New York City, full of astronomy and a whole bunch of other amazing space things going on there. And so Cassie, you were actually at NEEF and also there is a good friend of the show of ours, Alex Shimp, who uh, happens to be joining us as well for this special segment. Alex, welcome to Talking Space. Hello. I should also mention a welcome to Alex to Neef Posse because this year was his first Neef. <laughs> so kind of fun to be there with somebody there for the first time after years of going. So Cassie and Alex, you guys were at this event, which unfortunately I couldn't join you for this year, but one of the key things there is they have some spectacular speakers lined up, and we were just talking about planetary science, and they had a whole talk about that, right? Technically, there were a couple of talks about planetary science, and one is on the schedule, so I think I can say that Scott Bolton was there, but we'll be talking about that talk in a future episode. What was really, really, really interesting, and to me the highlight of NEEF, was Dr. Sarah Seeger from MIT. She's a planetary scientist and astrophysicist who is hunting for habitable exoplanets, which of course has been a very exciting topic this year. We've covered it a lot. <laughs> and it was quite interesting to, she actually showed us a lot of the images that people are using to find you know, the dimming that shows us where there could be exoplanets. And so it's incredible when you actually look at it. I don't know if any of our listeners have joined planethunters.org where you, anybody, don't need any degrees, nothing fancy, just a computer and a little time can go and hunt for exoplanets. And that's how we found a lot of them. <laughs> and when you look at these images that people are using, it's absolutely astounding to think that you can even notice these but the reason it's so important to have amateurs join in is that it's just a ton of data we have all of this data from kepler to sift through and there just aren't enough professional astronomers to do this work so it's kind of amazing there's been a lot of news about trappist one and I don't remember hearing this when I first heard about Trappist-1. Maybe you guys do. But the planets around it, they were so, they're so close together that they're actually tidally locked, just like the moon is with us. And so imagine you're in this super short orbit, and it's just daytime all the time. Or for those of us who enjoy astronomy, just nighttime all the time. That's what these Goldilocks zone planets, these particular ones are like, which we're kind of wondering, does that mean, could there actually be life that lives in that kind of environment? That's something that we don't know about. We have places on our planet that have parts of the year that are like that, but we don't know if life can survive without night or without day, which is kind of an interesting question, I think. Definitely an interesting question. Well, it don't really think about. 
right? I mean, we think about it with moons, but not with an actual planet and its sun. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing that makes it really difficult to find these systems is that they actually have to be in what she called a fortuitous alignment with us. Because when we're looking at these stars and we see this dimming, think about how our own solar system, how the planets are kind of in a line if you're looking across the solar system. They're not too far apart in this line. They're in different places in there revolutions around the sun, but there's sort of this plane that they all sort of orbit on. We can only see exoplanets and signs of exoplanets when it's in that perfect alignment. So it could be that every star that we look at has a solar system. It could absolutely be that every star we have ever seen has its own planets, which is kind of a mind-boggling thing to think about, even if you watched the original Cosmos and got used to hearing about billions and billions. But the places that we're looking are actually, we're trying to look at stars that are very, very dim already. Almost all of them are much smaller than our sun. And so that's an interesting question, too, because we don't know how much of a sun would you need when it comes to habitable worlds. So you can see, once again, all of these answers we're finding are just leading to more questions. All we really know is that there are definitely planets that are not too far and not too close from their star. And so it's, it's really interesting because it's so exciting. And yet, really, we don't know that much yet. And we won't for a while. And what really puts it into perspective is she pointed out that if you were in another solar system and you were looking at ours, you could actually see dimming and everything. And you knew that there were these planets or you at least knew about the inner planets. If you looked at Venus and you looked at the Earth, they would look exactly the same to you. But one of them is completely uninhabitable to life as we know it. And <laughs> one is like paradise. <laughs> she also mentioned talking about Trappist-1. If it was any, if the star was any smaller, it wouldn't be a star at all. It would be a brown dwarf. In fact, it's just slightly, uh, it's just slightly sh larger than Jupiter. Which, right. as we all know from Juno talks, <laughs> you know, it was almost big enough to be a second star to create a binary system. So yeah, <laughs> that kind of puts it all into perspective too, doesn't it? The star is just slightly larger than Jupiter. That's crazy. I know, right? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> right? It kind of boggles the mind. I just got really quiet because I can't stop thinking about this. It's the kind of thing that really captures the imagination. But I was just talking about tidally locked bodies. And that was the other thing that I guess you could call a planetary talk, but it was really more an astroimaging talk. And I don't know if anybody out there in our listening audience is familiar with the name Robert Reeves. You are definitely, if you like space, you are familiar with his work. His moon photography is everywhere. You can even buy some, if you get the current iPhone's cover that has a moon on it, that's his photo. And what I found so interesting is he is exactly what Neef is about. He's just an amateur astronomer who started taking pictures with his camera many, many years ago with real film back in those days. And he fell in love with taking pictures of the moon. This is his specialty. 
And these pictures, I mean, you like I said, you've seen them. They're on the cover of astronomy magazines. They've been pictures of the day on things. And this is another example. I love pointing out that any of you can go out and do things that are valuable to astronomy. In fact, I mentioned planet hunters and part about Sarah Seeger, which any of you can go hunt for exoplanets on there. And of course, we all have talked about GenoCam before where your pictures of Jupiter can be used to help study Jupiter. In this case, we're talking about just astrophotography of our moon that is actually really valuable because... Well, professionals aren't really looking at our moon anymore, aren't really taking pictures of it. And even the amateurs with the powerful telescopes that we have today, the moon has become less and less of a subject. In fact, the talk was called The Moon Lover's Guide to the Bright Sky. And he opened up by pointing out that we're talking so much about deep sky astrophotography now that people get annoyed with the moon because the full moon, of course, ruins deep sky astrophotography. And so... He's making the point that we have this wonderful thing to photograph that you can see from anywhere. You can see it from New York City in the middle of Times Square. You can see the moon if it's high enough. And so it's the one thing we all can look at everywhere in the world. So I really, really implore you all to look up the name Robert Reeves and look at his pictures. They will blow your mind and He's been using an 11-inch Celestron, but he actually downgraded from that recently. And I thought the most interesting thing was he used to chase professional telescope time to take his pictures. And then he stopped because he realized he was getting much better pictures with his smaller domestic telescope because he doesn't get as much interference from the atmosphere in those and the moon is so close he gets these beautiful wonderful up close images with less interference so now he just takes them in his backyard in texas his process is very interesting as well i think he said each one of his images is comprised of 500 images that he pieces together in fact, for those of you uh, astrophotography geeks out there, he um, uses Firecatcher to capture his images and takes AVI videos with that. And he says to use the highest frame rate available. Watch your histogram to make sure that your exposure is good because the eye will fool you while you're out there looking at a screen. And then he uses AutoStacker to grade and stack his images. And then he hand processes his images from there after he's converted them in auto stacker so like i said for you astrophoto tech geeks <laughs> all i need to do is get a telescope if only they sold telescopes at me <laughs> oh wait <laughs> uh, they do but not in the in the range that my pocketbook would allow good point <laughs> Though I would like to give a shout out to Celestron. I'm so, I feel so bad. I don't remember the guy's name, but one of the reps from Celestron went above and beyond in helping one of our tweeps and uh, a friend of the show, Angela Gibson, helped her with picking out a great outreach telescope that was within her budget and actually didn't even sell it to her at the show. <laughs> he, um, they didn't have it at the show. And so he told her how to go buy it and didn't take, anything didn't say to buy it through him actually told her to go out and where to get it the cheapest and you know so props to Celestron for and to that rep for you know supporting outreach in that way it's really cool 
Because <laughs> they are there to sell you stuff. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, planetary stuff, that sounds pretty cool. I know there's some stuff that we can't talk about yet, but uh, what were some of the other talks? They weren't all planetary, right? Oh, no. For one thing, the entire theme of the conference was pretty much about eclipses, right, Alex? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Well, the eclipse, not eclipses in general. The eclipse, the eclipse coming up in August. <laughs> totality. So you totally have to tell us what they talked about with that. <laughs> no one's no one's gonna laugh at that. Okay, that's fine. I'll hide. Back. <laughs> I know. I think I was the only one that went to one of those, and it was actually yeah Joe Rao from uh, FiOS One, and he gave a talk on how to survive August's total eclipse. And it was actually a pretty good talk. He injected a lot of humor. And one of the interesting points that he made, as I'm pulling up my tweet, there was there's a town in Carbondale, Illinois. And he made a comment that you could live 375 years and never have a total eclipse happen in the same place twice. But it's happening within 75 years because the 2017 eclipse will pass over Carbondale, Illinois, and the 2024 eclipse will pass over Carbondale in 2024. Really? Yes. I don't know how to say it. I guess I would say the stars align for that, but technically it's one star and one moon. Right. <laughs> That's pretty cool. He also talked about how in 2014, I guess he was, uh, his claim to fame was he found an Alaskan Airlines flight that was going from Anchorage to Hawaii and found out that it was going to pat it was like 30 minutes late to hit totality and he was able to convince through through all of his channels to get them to delay the flight for 30 minutes so that that plane could go through totality and the video he showed was incredible I can't even imagine getting to do that <laughs> from a plane it was incredible but the video was just incredible I, I as much as i can say about it <laughs> <laughs> i think that kind of says it all if it could blew you away that much <laughs> in addition to astronomy even though that's neve's core thing of course they also like to highlight a lot of nasa missions and this time well there was a bit of talk about commercial cargo but really exciting was they were talking about commercial crew so they had Caleb Weiss, the mission manager for the commercial crew program at ULA, and he gave a talk called Bridging History, Preparing to Launch Astronauts Atop ULA's Atlas V. So a little more love for Atlas here. <laughs> he gave a pretty good general rundown to start off. He showed, and we'll put a picture up on the show notes, he showed all of the history of ULA's rockets along with the new variations on the atlas and of course i believe there was a vulcan in there including the crew configuration which is going to of course be a 422 with two srbs and that's going to be for launching to leo he made a big point over and over and over and you can't blame him at all for uh, the fact that ula is at 100 percent mission success since they've been ula <laughs> I only got a paraphrase down of this, but he said something I thought was beautiful. He said, mission failures are not pretty, and there were many of those in the early days. We thank those who worked on those missions for figuring out how to make this work and more reliable. 
So I thought that was a nice note on the fact that failures are how everybody initially got off the ground. <laughs> but they're obviously very proud of their record and they're very excited about their abort system for the crew system. I mean, I guess that's a good thing to be excited about, although they hope you never have to use it. Well, that's the thing. You hope you never have to use it, but if you use it, oh my gosh, is it mission critical that it works? Good point. <laughs> it's just like you don't want to use a safety chute, but you're sure glad it's there. <laughs> Very true. But he said, you know, that's really the, that's the biggest change to this Atlas V, is that they're having to add this whole abort system along with the aero skirt, which... They've now developed, they've, of course, gone through a few different versions of skirt to make it work, but they eventually found that just having a straight skirt worked by far the best, and it's easy to jettison once the service module is no longer needing to be with the capsule. So it worked out really well with this aero skirt. They're very excited about that solution. Just to specify, the aero skirt mm -hmm. is not the flowy, wavy thing that it decided to wear to prom, correct? No, no, it's basically... <laughs> It basically just, it looks like it's just, it's a straight line around. It's a, I forget how wide it is because I don't have that in my notes, the size of it, but it just, it, you know, they, they had the, they had all those fancy designs and they just ended up with this straight thing that just, it looks like it's basically wrapped around. It's like if you wrap a uh, tinfoil around a round cake. And it's, and what's it's designed to do actually? Basically, it's to fix aerodynamic loads. It seems like from the diagrams, it covers the service module. And so it sort of covers that area between the capsule and the top of the Centaur stage. So that's the best I can really explain it right now. <laughs> because that's, pretty, that's good. pretty much how he said it in the talk. But it should be, it looks really cool. And if you have seen some of the older designs, You'll see this. This actually looks so much simpler. And I love when design turns out that, you know, the simpler thing is the solution. So, but that's just a little bias of mine. <laughs> so, yeah, they're excited. The Aeroskirt is one of the newer advances. And they're excited. They're really getting ready for the CFT test flight. That will have one Boeing test pilot and one NASA astronaut. They haven't selected which one yet. And... In December 2018 and March 2019, they have the first scheduled flights with four astronauts. So <laughs> they're pretty excited about that. It'll be about three hours from liftoff to get to the ISS. The Atlas flight's about 15 minutes, and then the service module will take it to the ISS. The spacecraft will be completely autonomous. There will be no need to fly the thing unless something goes wrong. They can, of course, go to fully manual control if they need to, but they can just sit back and relax and fly through space and dock to the station. Nobody has to do a thing. So uh, that's the next level for the astronauts. And, of course, it can be used in a crew or a cargo configuration. And it will be landing on dry land. So is that going to be their slogan now to try and, you know, for the astronaut recruiting class, sit back, relax, and go to space? They're going to have to actually be recruiting pretty hard because I don't know if you guys have seen ULA's vision for the future, but their goal, their not too long-term goal, fairly short term, is to have at least 1,000 people living and working permanently in space. That's the vision that they see for the next step of 
Lower Earth Orbit, and what they want to be is the railroad for that. They want to be Union Pacific. Right. And, and Cass, just to interject here, if you remember, Dr. Bernard Cutter from United Launch Alliance was one of the speakers at last year's NEF. Mm-hmm. And uh, if anybody's interested and wants to see that, that is available out there on YouTube. But it, it is an intriguing future that ULA is looking for and looking at. And uh, one of the questions I have is, when does this get off of the PowerPoint slide stage and onto other things? The ACES stage, that has been around since, oh, good Lord, since about 2010. And that's going to essentially be the linchpin of that thing. If, if I recall exactly, too, there's going to be a kit on that ACES stage that can be attached to it that will enable a human descent down to the lunar surface or to deliver cargo or anything like that. And indeed, they want to go ahead and be that. Well, and that's the thing. That configuration is so smart that way because obviously they can keep making different kinds of modules for it. Yeah, that, that's just it. That's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I was about to say, Cass. Here we go again. <laughs> just like we were saying about orbital ATK, right? I mean, this is the future is exactly plug and play capability. Gosh. What I find exciting is you're talking about when, and I ask the same question. I want to know when. But I do find this really exciting across the board where these commercial companies, while sometimes we pick at their visions and sometimes we're like, we want to know more, we want to know more. I also love the fact that they are thinking in terms of these grand visions. They're not just thinking in terms of, oh, when do we make money at this this and this part? Like, no, they, they see this long-term investment. They see this capability they see that they want to you know just like people who had the vision to actually build ways to get out west and to make it possible to do trade with places all over the eons it's the same kind of thing it takes that kind of that level of vision it can't just be a quick money grab corporate thinking thing and that's one of the things that's so beautiful about space in the corporate world is that you have to have these grand visions you're working for because if you're not working towards a grand vision then you're getting left behind exactly that even goes back to what we were talking about before with spacex you know their grand vision of getting things down a bit but Mm -hmm. it all comes down to when and i know that's the big question and as long as it happens though well and the truth is I think a lot of it is there are a lot of different visions, different companies, different countries have a lot of different visions. And do I think any particular one of them is necessarily going to work out the way it's planned today? Not necessarily. Do I think there might be some combined version that, you know, some amalgamation of the things that everybody's working towards? Absolutely. Because ultimately, that's the way things usually wind up working. Yeah, I don't think there's any mission that has ever gone to its final stage and looked anything like it did on the drawing board of the initial, in this case now, the initial PowerPoints. Anything humans have ever done in history has never looked like it did in the initial <laughs> Oh, come on, Sawyer. You know pretty much you can go ahead and throw out the mission plan book for any any shuttle flight or any, any you know, I mean, anybody oh, yeah. that had flown on shuttle could tell you. I know folks that had worked hours upon hours and days upon days on the mission plan. And after that eight minute ride, you could basically throw the mission plane out the window because it never really, really works the same way as it's supposed to. Yeah, the Hubble repair mission comes to mind where Mike Massimino ended up yanking off a handle just with brute force. 
Yeah, and everybody watching that video applauding, and basically Massimino's reaction was, thank you for applauding as I broke the telescope. But <laughs> That's pretty much <laughs> yeah. what it's going to come down to, I think, with these two. It's you break it until it works. Yeah, pretty much. Hey, Alex, can I ask a real quick question of you? Sure. Yeah, well, this was your first Northeast Astronomy Forum. What did you think? I'm hooked. <laughs> yeah, it was a blast and getting to spend it with Cassie and Woody made it even that much better so I'm glad and hopefully you'll be a, a regular at the infamous Neef Posse I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing you next year and hopefully spend some time and uh, and take in uh, taking some good science that's definitely the plan all you listeners out there you know if you go to Neef tweet any of us with the hashtag Neef Posse we love to have more people be part of this bunch that go there and have a great time listen to great talks we'd love to actually meet you out there if we haven't in the past it's a good time to come yeah. find us uh, well this year just me from the past and now you're hearing Alex but you know in past years Sawyer's been there Gene of course we're hoping to get the rest of the crew up so yeah, you know, give us a shout out. Yeah, amen. More than happy to to have you tag along. I mean, we wreak mayhem and uh, and have a good time learning about what our space program's up to. Absolutely. It felt really good to be able to meet up with old friends and tweet and talk about space again like the old days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, in fact, speaking of the future of U.S. space flight. There was one other talk that Alex went to that I was not at. It was with Todd May, director of NASA Marshall. It was called Mars and Beyond, Enabling Deep Space Exploration and Science. Yes, I did. So any big news from Cat's adopted state for the time being? I, <laughs> I, have, I have to be honest. I'm having a lot of brain fog from the event. and Well, um, this is think... not Northeast Astronomy Forum, but Aerojet Rocketdyne is consolidating their operations, and they're bringing 800 jobs to Huntsville. They have some operations. So there are actually some areas are losing jobs, but since they're doing their production for um, their rocket for United Launch Alliance, it's great that they're going to be bringing jobs and sort of getting closer to their assembly and production so that we can be launching American-made rockets and avoiding some of the issues that we have with procuring and possibly even in the engines of the RD-180s. So that's not NEF information, but I was really excited to see another space company that I'm a fan of coming down to Alabama. So I'm only here temporarily, but while I'm here, it's nice that I have space company. I think the biggest tagline I remember from that talk the most was that you can't spell Marshall without Mars. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, if I remember the talk correctly, it was along the lines of a lot of that the production of the rockets and whatnot. And he was talking about how they how they had to enlarge the Pegasus barge, and uh, he also said that they had the first four engines for SLS built and tested. And like I said, I apologize, I have a lot of brain fog from the weekend. <laughs> first NEFs are overwhelming. <laughs> Very true. So yeah, it was really wonderful having Alex join us for NEF this year, and I really hope that more of you come join us for next year. And I'd also, I have to say on a personal note, just to give you an idea of how fun Neef is, my boyfriend, romantic partner, we actually celebrated our 20th anniversary at Neef this year. We had a million things that we were 
thinking about doing for this that were like romantic or involved getting our families together, friends together. And we ultimately decided that there was nowhere we'd rather be. <laughs> so that's where we spent our 20th anniversary. So next year, come join us. Oh, <laughs> how adorable. <laughs> you too can find love at Neef. Well, we didn't exactly find each <laughs> other there. But I, I, I'm apparently famous now for being the girl who got her guy to go there uh, rather than the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> well, and just remember, next year, Woody and Cassie's relationship will be old enough to drink. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, Cassie, Alex, thank you so much for talking about Neef. And again, keep in mind, Neef 2018 is coming up soon. If you'd like more information, you can Google the Northeast Astronomy Forum or Neef to find out more. Now, before we wrap up, there is something super extremely important, this story. And that is our very own Mark Ratterman has been working with a FIRST robotics team. In case you're unaware, that's typically a group of high school students that get together, build a robot, and compete. Yes, it's as awesome as it sounds, and Mark, being as awesome as he is, has been helping out with the Get Smart team, and they have moved on into the finals in Houston, Texas. So, champion team over there, Mark. First off, congratulations to your team for making it on to Houston. For those who don't know, do you mind sharing a little bit about what you do with the team and how people can root for you and support you? Sure. Happy to. First Robotics is something that I uh, heard about originally in uh, 2011. And it wasn't until the beginning of the 2015 season, so the beginning of 2015, that I took an active part with it. I volunteered with a local team I'd made contact with and said, hey, if I can help out, I'd be glad to. And on the subject of helping out, you know, when you think of all the experiences you have, you know, through your life where people have made a difference in, in what they've done, what they've said, how they've influenced you. And I've always heard about giving back, but I've never really thought that I had anything particularly to give back. And the FIRST Robotics organization works with teams from kindergarten through 12th grade. There's different levels of competition for the different age groups, and it's something that the kids that become part of a team at whatever age they're at, they get hooked. It changes them. It's something that's an influence beyond what schools typically do, and it's something that often sets a course in a young student's direction that makes that difference. And so... I'm giving back because I saw an enthusiasm, I saw innovation and, you know, focus beyond what I expected from high school students. So here we are, our team in Lake City, Florida, Get Smart FRC, team number 3556, is headed to championships in Houston, Texas. Championships is actually split between this year, St. Louis has won and Houston is the other. So we're saying, how can you be champ when you've got two championships? Well, they've, they've figured out a solution for that too. But we're going to Houston. These are things that are not cheap. So one of the ways that people can support a team is financially. They can make financial contributions. And our, our students, honestly, the last three weeks, we've been fundraising. And we have been thrilled for anything from a dollar and up that people provide because the travel is something that costs money. The robot itself isn't cheap, although they have limits on price, so you can't have superstar teams with unlimited budgets build something 
more phenomenal than somebody else, you know, with a given amount of money. But we're headed to Houston. I encourage you to go to www.firstchampionship.org and take a look at the website. You'll see a gazillion links that will explain some of the basics of it. There are uh, exhibitors from industry. There are something we call Scholarship Row, which is a course related to higher education and giving the students a chance to talk to some of the representative from different colleges, universities around the country. There are presentations. There is an app that you'll see links to from that firstchampionship.org website. The app shows the speakers. There is a speaker that will be there from the NASA and the New Horizon mission. And I'm, for some strange reason, looking forward to uh, being in that session. That's the first time I've uh, had, you know, direct uh, involvement with New Horizons. It's always been the news that I've been listening to. I'll get to hear some of it for myself. So there's a lot going on there. Uh, I encourage you to find a local team. You can do it through the firstinspires.org website. You can find a team that's local to you. Encourage you to get in touch with them. Make a difference in your local area. Give back. Do what you can. And maybe if now isn't the time, just for personal time to be able to be part of a team and part of what's going on, maybe in the summer make contact and see what you can do then. And it'll surprise you because it's not just the people that know how to build a robot because I, to this day, do not know how to build a robot. If it was up to me, we would have a box of parts we would take to competition. But there's a lot of skills from Really, if you think of every part of what goes into any industry, any business, any enterprise that you want to look at, those are the things that are part of robotics competition, especially the high school uh, first robotics competition, the FRC level. So check it out, make a difference, and I'll be talking to you again after Houston, and hopefully we'll be a, a top team and do well there. We're looking forward to it. Mark, good luck and uh, good luck to your team. If folks were kind of interested in giving your team a little bit of a nudge as far as uh, any financial support, if they just wanted to go ahead and write a check for a couple of bucks, where would they do that? The uh, website for our team is www.team3556.com. So team3556.com. And there's links on the page for sponsorship. You can see how we're doing on our uh, fundraising for travel for Houston. We're open year-round. We're at the big part of, of what's going on right now with our trip to Houston, but uh, we've got activities that we'll be planning through the summer. We want to do some outreach to local schools, younger ages, uh, students, and um, those are you'd be surprised at the things that you can do to be part of it, and it is fun. One of the hashtags, sorry I'm taking so long with this, but one of the hashtags that's common among social media for FIRST is uh, more than robots. And one of the uh, expressions is it's the hardest fun you'll ever have. And uh, yep, sure enough, it is. Good luck to Team Get Smart, Mark. I'm looking forward to uh, to hearing the story of your exploits over in Houston. Thank you so much for sharing that, Mark. Best of luck to you and the team. For sure, we'll all be rooting for you and uh, can't wait to hear next episode how you guys did. And congratulations on just making it to this point. That's really 
Fantastic. So not just best of luck, but congratulations already. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You're going to have to wait till next episode to find out what happens, and we hope you will join us next episode. But before that, I'd like to thank everybody who joined us for this one. And that includes Gene McCulka. Thank you, Gene. Thanks, Sawyer. And uh, hopefully we'll be uh, back from uh, this little snit over here in North Carolina and back at uh, home base in New Jersey. Yes, a lot of us had some issues, unfortunately, that kept us off the air for a few months, myself included, dealing with some medical issues. But we're back, and hopefully you're back with us. And hopefully back with us again next week will be the rest of our crew, including Cassie Tamanini. Thank you, Cassie. Thank you, and at least we all had issues at the same time. So hopefully now our issues will be ending at the same time, and we can just keep going, putting out regular episodes for the rest of the season. Sounds great to me. Thank you as well for joining us, Kat Robinson. Very lovely to be here yet again. Very happy uh, to be starting a new season and just, yeah, go Talking Space and go Rockets. I love them. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Mark Ratterman, as well. Been a lot of fun. I don't think we left too many topics unturned on this one. No, this was definitely supersized. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it surely was. And again, a special thank you to Alex Shimp for joining us to talk about Neef. Glad I could be here. Alex, good to have you on board, buddy. Thanks. And we thank you all for listening. Now, keep in mind, we've got so much more planned for Season 9 of Talking Space. We've got the new website that we talked about coming very soon, a few other surprises. We've got some events already lined up that we're going to, some interviews planned. We have a lot coming for you in 2017. It is going to be a great year, and we hope you'll stick it out with us. But until our next episode, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. Thank you.